Welcome in everybody to the Moving in the Right Direction podcast. It is a podcast designed to successfully guide seniors and their families in moving from their longtime home to the lifestyle that they deserve. I am here as always as your host, Chris Essenberg, and as always, I am joined by senior real estate specialist and author, Bruce Nemovitz. Uh, how are you doing today, Bruce? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good here. Uh, I am glad that I finally, actually, this is this is a little embarrassing, but I finally got this situation uh, from some previous year's taxes. Finally worked out, paid off. Uh, I feel like a new man. <laughs> um, it was basically a situation where years ago, I, uh, I you know, have a 401k. And I uh, borrowed a little bit from that 401k because needed a new car. I totaled my car. It was not as bad as it sounds, uh, but I needed a new car. And uh, so I, I borrowed from that 401k and uh, I, I used TurboTax to do my taxes, which of course, you know, up until that point, I just had a, you know, standard job where I could just input my W-2 information. It was pretty straightforward. So I thought, oh, you know, uh, no need to... It's not broke. Don't fix it. So I used TurboTax again, uh, didn't calculate everything correctly. And then uh, that tax year came. This was about five years ago. And uh, wouldn't you know, my mouth dropped all the way to the floor, down to the basement and uh, halfway down to the earth because I owed quite a bit um, because I did not calculate it appropriately. So I'm very, very happy, though, because I fi finally have that uh, uh, squared away. It is a thing of the past. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. Well, I guess, Chris, I think one of the good things is you have a 401k. That is true. That's a huge silver lining. I mean, gosh, it, these are first world problems, definitely. Um, but, you know, it definitely was something where I learned that, um, you know, sometimes paying that extra little bit of money up front to have someone that's like a professional sit down and and work through these important things like you know taxes or uh actually some of the stuff we're gonna go over today like uh preparing a will stuff like that it pays off big time in the long run to have someone that's a professional go over that stuff with you as opposed to just doing it online it would have been better for me personally to have a professional to, to kind of go through it with you know, talking about complex situations, uh, when I go into a home, somebody wants to sell their home, sometimes they've inherited a home, and I'll look up title and find out it's in a trust, or maybe there wasn't a will, things like that. And so when I go over to the home, sometimes there can be some shocking responses when it turns out I then have to tell them they need to go see an elder law attorney because the title wasn't done properly when their parents set up their estate or there was no estate set up. So sometimes we can really walk into some shocking situations. Well, you know, what else is shocking is actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because you're never going to believe this, Bruce, but we actually have an elder law attorney with us here today on the show. Can you believe that? No, I can't. How, how lucky can we be? <laughs> I don't know. I, we're really lucky. So, um, so yeah, we're actually. That, gonna... that was. Uh, I think it was talking about planning. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> we, we clearly we were learning. We're learning. I'm learning. Ultimately, in the big picture, something as small as okay, well, you gotta 
pay a little something on your taxes you didn't think of. But then when we get into situations uh, like like you've gone through, Bruce, a million times working with uh, in your field and also uh, situations that our guest today works with, uh, you know, through elder law, estate planning, family law. This can be really crucial stuff with huge implications if it's not done correctly. So I'm not, I'm, not only that, Chris, but uh, the laws, they just keep changing. And just to keep up with that, uh, you have to have a professional. Do not try this on your own. Yeah, this is absolutely stuff that you should not try and navigate through alone. So luckily, we don't have to because we've got our guest today. So uh, let's get to her. I'm really excited to get to our first guest. Uh, she has been practicing law, specializing in estate planning, elder law, and family law for over a decade. Uh, she currently works, uh, practices with McGillis and Weimer, and uh, she is Megan Hendricks. Uh, welcome, Megan. How are you doing today? Thanks. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Now, I know when we were talking before recording, uh, you were telling me you have a very unique blend of doing family law, elder law, and estate planning. So I was just wondering if you could tell the folks a little bit about how you came in to start practicing those three kind of unique areas of the law. Sure. So I graduated from Marquette University Law School in 2010, and I started right off the bat with those three areas of practice. Um, I, I went to law school for the purpose of helping families through different legal um, issues. And so uh, estate planning, elder law, family law, I get to work directly with families in all of those areas. And either I'm helping them through some sort of uh, legal issue that they're facing at the moment, or I get to help them plan ahead for the future. So I have found it um, a really great way to help people. Well, that's uh, definitely something that I think everybody is going to want to consider. I think, I think uh, the takeaway is there's lots of stuff to consider, <laughs> you know, when we're going into this process that we might not have uh, been aware of. So if someone listening here is, you know, they're kind of just at square one right here, um, you know, and, and they, they have an estate planned, they haven't worked with uh, any, you know, elder law or family attorneys at all, um, but they know that this is something that they want to start to consider and plan for, uh, what would you tell them? What, what are some good starting points, some jumping off points for those individuals? I think a good starting point is just to reach out to an attorney who does elder law or estate planning um, to just have a really brief conversation um, to see if it's something that you know they could help with. So I always offer you know a brief phone call with everyone who's interested in learning more about what services I provide and whether I can help them. So um, I you know often will speak to someone for. 15, 20 minutes just to see if it's something that um, that I can help with. And if they'd be interested in pursuing it more, we can go from there. But I think that that's a, a really good first step because um, with any of this, the techniques that we discussed today, you know, these are legal techniques and the implications of doing something wrong can have a really big impact on the family. Sure. And we wouldn't want that to happen at all. Now, I, I know this might be a very, very loaded question, uh, but uh, just wanted to ask, when would individuals, what are some key 
components or scenarios where they would need to um, work with someone in elder law or estate planning versus uh, maybe situations where that might not be something that's necessary. So people know, like, is this something I need to consider? Or is this maybe something that's not uh, necessarily something that needs to be on the table right now? Mm -hmm. um, I think big life events are always kind of keys for uh, just checking in on, on legal advice. So uh, new families, birth of a child, uh, you know, one really important estate planning tool in that situation is actually a will because a will is the document in which you name guardians of minor children. Um, so that's really important. That's an important time in people's lives. Um, retirement tends to be another important time to kind of check in with uh, your planning and see if you need to do anything. That's probably the most common time people will call me because they say, okay, now I'm retired. I should probably get my estate plan in order, or I should probably start thinking about that long-term care planning. Uh, Megan, I have a question for you. So you, you just mentioned uh, life-changing events. And what I'm seeing more and more is uh, dementia, uh, the start of dementia. We're not sure how far along because it's such a nebulous, hard to understand disease. You, you don't know when the beginning is. We don't know how far into it you are. And at what point, if somebody, as an example, wants to sell their home and uh, the children are sensing or they've even gone to the doctor and got a diagnosis of maybe onset dementia, at what point do we need a guardianship? Uh, at what point is that parent that maybe is suffering from this terrible disease uh, unable to actually sign any papers and have to get a guardianship? Mm -hmm. That's a great point, Bruce. Um, I, anytime someone has either been diagnosed with early stages of dementia, or even if the children kind of um, are, have concerns about it, but there hasn't been a diagnosis, that is a really crucial time to um, make sure estate planning documents are in place because the preference would be that rather than going through court and getting guardianship over a person who has lost decision-making ability, um, instead we would rather get powers of attorney in place. So um, those are some estate planning documents that appoint agents who could make those decisions on that person's behalf. And even a person who has a, you know, an early diagnosis of dementia, um, could still sign those documents. It's going to depend upon their capacity at the time of the signing. Um, but I have had many situations where we've still been able to do those documents, even though there is some memory loss. Now, uh, Megan, I think you've kind of already posed certain, uh, a few answers to this question I'm about to ask here, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I know that there are a lot of services out there where I could just go and create my will without talking to anybody, right? I can just go on. And I'm sure that there are scenarios where that's fine. Um, but as someone who's got a decade of experience, um, would you mind maybe just talking to me a little bit about why that's 
why there are maybe situations where that's not the best route or what, what roadblocks or obstacles could I run into if I'm thinking, all right, you know what, I'm, at, I'm uh, getting close to retirement or maybe there's another reason, but I need to do a will and I'm just going to do it myself and I'm not going to talk to anyone else and it's going to be cheaper that way. And there you go. Uh, thoughts yeah, on that? I have a real life situation that can kind of highlight the downside of doing that. So um, a person came to me for estate planning and they had created a will online through using one of the um, you know, programs that are available online. When I looked at the document, I actually noticed that um, that client had given away more than 100% of their estate. So they broke things down into percentages. And when I added all those percentages up, it was more than 100%. So obviously that wasn't a possible, that wasn't a valid disposition of their estate. And um, that just kind of highlights that program that they paid for didn't catch a very simple mistake. So um, kind of, (laughs) I know that we're a do-it-yourself culture and I certainly like doing some things myself too, but I think when um, when it comes to legal documents, it's, it's not just a matter of filling in blanks, which certainly anyone can fill in blanks. What you get from seeing an attorney is the knowledge of the law and how it applies to each individual client's situation and the different options that are available and the pros and cons that come from each different option. Absolutely. And I mean, when it comes to a will, I can't, I mean, if I'm thinking, if I'm ranking important documents that I'm going to fill out in my life, that's got to be, you know, top one or two. So, you know, if if there's ever a time to invest a little more to make sure that it's done right and make sure that there's not potential downfalls with, you know, software, not checking something appropriately, um, I would imagine that this is, this is it. So, um, I, you know, I appreciate your insight on that. So let's talk a bit about estate planning. I know this is something that many people can put off, which of course we all understand, but the implications of putting it off can uh, at times have a really devastating outcome. So Megan, uh, I'm going to ask you, when starting the estate planning process, what major suggestions do you have? Yeah, so first, I would suggest meeting with an attorney who specializes in estate planning, because there are many different types of estate planning tools, and there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. When I meet with clients, I want to know what would be in their estate who are their intended beneficiaries, and do they have any concerns about family conflict or about certain beneficiaries receiving assets directly or just any concern in general? And so with knowing that information, I can really educate people about the different options there are with estate planning and which option fits their circumstances best. So you mentioned a lot of options. So I guess naturally my, my, my next question would be, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the different options that are out there? Yeah, I would say, and this is how I explain it to my clients, there are generally two paths that you can take 
from an estate administration approach. And so one path, which is probably the most common path when someone is, you know, maybe not educated about different options or um, or doesn't have their estate plan done, um, that approach would be the probate court process. And then the other approach would be the non-probate administration. So how do we avoid going through court? And there are a couple different options with that. And again, I will, I will play the uh, kind of the uh, entry level, doesn't know exactly what you're talking about person. It's just a role, I swear. No, it's actually true. I, I'm not sure. Um, so <laughs> could you explain uh, to myself and to those listening that might not know, what, what is probate exactly? Of course. Um, probate is a court process that is in charge of administering a person's estate. So probate, um, you know, there's different variations. There can be informal probate, which is essentially a lot of paperwork. Um, and then there's formal probate, which means that there are hearings in front of a judge and the judge might have to make decisions um, about how a person's estate is administered. But either way um, that it ends up unfolding, probate does happen in court. And um, so there are additional steps, additional um, fees, and usually additional time that's involved in a probate estate. So it sounds like the best way to go, the best route to take, if possible, is to avoid probate, right? Generally, yes. Um, I would say that in most circumstances, it's best to avoid probate. There are circumstances where it might be better to use that court process, especially if there's conflict in a family. Um, but generally, my clients are looking to avoid probate. You know, uh, Megan, just uh, chiming in here, I have so many clients uh, in my practice in real estate that come to me and, you know, they want to sell mom or dad's house and think, you know, this is going to be you know, things are in order that mom and dad were pretty responsible people. And so, you know, Bruce, can you sell the house? There shouldn't be an issue. And then I find out there is uh, no will. And I'll ask then, okay, who is in charge? Who's the executor of the estate? And they'll say, what a state. <laughs> and I'll say, you know what, it's time to call Megan or an elder law attorney because uh, we need to go through probate. And when that happens, it's kind of shocking uh, to most of the children, especially in that they don't understand why they don't have control of the process, why it is a judge get involved in this. So maybe you could just touch a little about any experiences you've had with, uh, you know, the children inheriting properties and finding out uh, at the last minute that it's going through probate. Yeah. And Bruce, you probably see a lot of this firsthand because I will say real estate is the most common probate asset. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this. So uh, I think that a, everyone I've ever dealt with has been surprised by how detailed and how much work the probate process is. Um, and so I think that's always a surprise for the kids who are going through this. Well, why can't I just sell mom and dad's house? Why can't I, you know, just do these things that we kind of thought were um, already in place? And the court really has a big responsibility to make sure that they're overseeing everything 
effectively. And so there are a lot of steps that um, that need to be addressed. And I, I guess I'll tell you kind of my uh, one horror story, so to speak, where um, a family didn't do any planning. And so the dad had passed uh, many years before I was ever involved. The mom was in hospice and essentially not coherent. Um, so she was at the end of her life. And so it was too late to try to do any estate planning at that point. Um, what we what we did was get guardianship. So at least the son could make some of her medical decisions, um, you know, towards the end of her life. But what ended up happening when she passed was that we had to open up a probate and um, administer her estate to, you know, pass to her children through that probate process. But because the husband's name was never removed from the title of the real estate when he passed, we also had to open up a probate for the husband who had been passed for 10 years just to transfer his 50% interest to the mom and then, or the wife, and then transfer 100% of the property to the two sons. And unfortunately, while this probate process was going on, because probate will take some time, it generally lasts you know, eight months to a year, even in a smooth probate, that one of the sons passed. So then there was a third probate for his estate to transfer to his brother as his heir. So that was just um, a very unfortunate situation, but it really highlights the importance of proper planning. Based on what you were saying, I know that based on what you were saying, a big uh, deal of importance is placed on how the property is titled then, right? Um, so that's going to have a big impact on things. Um, could you speak a little bit to how properties can be titled and, uh, and maybe the difference between uh, a revocable trust or a TOD? Yeah, so property um, can be titled a number of different ways. And generally speaking, when husbands and wives or spouses own property together, they own that property as um, survivorship marital property, meaning that when one spouse passes, the other spouse automatically receives um, 100% of the property. There is a form that needs to be filed. It's a relatively simple form, um, and it should be filed as soon as possible after one spouse has passed to avoid the situation we just talked about. Um, so it's, it's relatively simple between uh, married couples to pass property. But what people often forget is how do I pass that real estate to my children or my other beneficiaries after I pass? And there's really a couple different options when we're trying to avoid probate. We have one option of a transfer on death deed. And that's a simple form that you can fill out. It needs to be notarized. It needs to be recorded in the chain of title. But essentially, it's a beneficiary designation on that asset, that piece of real estate. So when the um, single owner or the, you know, all of the multiple owners pass, it will, it will transfer to the beneficiaries named on that document without going through probate. The other option is a revocable trust. And that's a really common planning tool in my practice because I find it to be a really efficient way of avoiding probate. Um, and so I would say there's pros and cons to each 
option. And that's really something that people should, you know, meet with an estate planner and kind of talk through both options and see what would be best for them. You know, Megan, in my practice, again, I, I have so many people that um, are, you know, wanting to sell a property. And I, I look up the title and find out that it isn't a revocable trust or there's different names of trusts. And I explain to them, then they will be signing as trustees. They won't sign as Joe Smith, Mary Smith. They'll be signing as Joe Smith trustee. And um, does that involve a different type of deed that would be given to the, to the new buyer then? Yeah, typically it's called a trustee's deed. So when a trustee is selling the property, uh, they will execute a trustee's deed, transferring it to the buyer. And that's a, it's a perfectly um, a good solution to, uh, you know, to making sure that you've got your estate plan set up properly. Um, and when you create a revocable trust for the purposes of estate planning, you are still in charge of the assets that are in the trust. So you are the trustee in control of the assets. And you're also the beneficiary, you know, having access to using the assets. Uh, so there are many different types of trusts and uh, they all do different things. But for the purposes of the discussion here today, we're really talking about a revocable trust done for the purposes of avoiding probate. So it sounds like probate is the, definitely the thing to avoid at all costs if we can, right? Yeah, in most circumstances, that's correct. Um, so, and, and the revocable trust being pretty impactful when it comes to a situation, uh, especially one that has, you know, maybe multiple children that may argue over you know, who's going to be receiving which assets. Um, I know you told us a, uh, a story of how that didn't all work out. Um, do you maybe have any examples of, of situations you worked through when you were able to establish that revocable trust and uh, and things were to you know and things worked out in a more favorable way? Yeah, there's lots of circumstances. So um, a revocable trust can be really useful in a number of different situations, but particularly when you have minor children. Um, or when you have a beneficiary who has special needs and may be receiving public benefits like SSI or Medicaid, um, or when there's multiple beneficiaries and you really just need one person to be the decision maker um, to kind of take on all the responsibilities, you know, sell the house if that's needed, distribute the proceeds. So in those circumstances, it can be really helpful. So I have a question. Um, many times also, I, you know, I've been in this quite a long time, so I, I have so many stories, but one of the stories um, seems to repeat itself over the years and really stands out. Uh, often I'll have several children. Let's just take an example of five children that are going to be inheriting the estate. Mom and dad have passed. And one of the children was named as executor or personal representative for the estate. Uh, that, in that instance, I find that often not everyone is in agreement 
the the one child that maybe is in California and and the properties in Wisconsin, that child maybe has a lot of input where the child that's been in our city has been taking care of mom and dad. And there's, you know, some bad feelings in some ways that I'm doing all the work and you're giving me advice. Um, what do you do in an instance where let's just say the children are not getting along and do you have a talk with the entire family, a meeting, or how do you get them all to get on the same page? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that highlights one of the biggest downfalls of using a transfer on death deed with multiple beneficiaries um, because a transfer on death deed is really just like a beneficiary designation of any other type, life insurance, retirement assets, what it does is it transfers the property to those beneficiaries automatically. And so if you have five people named as your beneficiaries, now you have five joint owners of real estate and all five of them have to agree on everything involving that real estate. That can create a huge nightmare. Um, and I've seen it happen and Bruce, I'm sure you have as well. And if they can't agree and we really you know, ultimately can't get them to agree, then we have to get the court to step in. And again, that's we're trying to avoid court. So, um, so I would suggest that you, instead of naming multiple beneficiaries, you instead appoint um, one person to be in charge of making those decisions, whether that's a personal representative through a will or a trustee through a trust. So Megan, I have uh, had other instances where the parents actually gave the property to their children. I don't know if that's a great idea or not, but um, therefore, in some instances, I had three, four, five owners of the property. They were all actually in ownership. It was not in a state at that time. And a few of them, let's say, are not getting along and they have different ideas what it should sell for and what should we get it ready by putting a new roof on or you know the other one doesn't want to how do you deal with a family where there are multiple owners and say they're not in agreement do you uh, i know this uh, a few of them uh, sometimes we suggest to give power of attorney maybe to the attorney uh, how have you handled that mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you definitely try to do whatever you can without resorting to court involvement. So whether that's um, taking the family and going through mediation to try to resolve any disputes or um, if they could all agree to hand over decision-making authority to one person, that's certainly another good option. Um, you know, but ultimately if none of those out of court processes work, then um, the only other option that we would have is having a court involved um, and having a judge make a final decision. I, I know, and I think a couple of the last uh, experiences I've had, uh, they did give power of attorney to uh, an elder law attorney who was basically um, totally objective, not subjective. And they, they all kind of felt that that was a good idea. And they agreed on one attorney to have the power to sign with, of course, their permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that can be a, that can be a good remedy for the situation. Um, but I would suggest, you know, pre-planning ahead to try to avoid that scenario from even occurring in the first place. Yeah, that definitely sounds like uh, the last resort that you'd want to have to uh, turn to. 
uh, which again, I think it just touches on something that Bruce and I have been talking about a lot on this podcast, which is uh, especially in situations where there is a big family to try and get uh, that one leader or, you know, designated family member that's going to kind of lead the charge, uh, which of course, you know, sometimes that can be difficult to find or, you know, to decide who that's going to be, but really to, to try and figure that out before so it doesn't have to get into a situation where someone like yourself, Megan, would be uh, appointed as uh, the individual to to make all those decisions, right? Yeah. Now, uh, I, so I, I'm really hoping that that gives folks a lot to consider regarding estate planning, but I know that's, that's just a third of your practice. Uh, so uh, let's talk just a little, if we could, uh, if you don't mind, about elder law, since I think that's a very applicable topic for this podcast as well. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about elder law, maybe specifically how it can tie into real estate? Yeah, so elder law is a pretty broad area of practice. Um, but what I'll talk about specifically today is what I would call Medicaid planning. And that's a big portion of my practice. So I work with families who um, either they need long-term care when they're coming to see me. Um, so it could be their spouse or it could be their parent um, or it could be themselves that needs the long-term care. Or they don't need it now, but they're just thinking ahead. Okay, what if I need it in the future? So I can help families look at the financial implication of long-term care and um, use the laws that we have in place to preserve or protect assets. And so um, when someone needs long-term care, there's really only three options for payment. Uh, you can use a long-term care policy if you already purchased it, you know, well in advance of needing the care. You could privately pay, which is very expensive, or if those aren't options, then you apply for Medicaid, which is the program that provides assistance with long-term care. So Medicare and private health insurance do not pay for long-term care. So a lot of those families will come to me and say, Megan, we're scared. We're, we feel like we're going to lose the house and everything we own. What can we do? Um, and you know, thankfully, I can assure them that uh, no, you know, it's, it's not as dire as, as you, you know, think it is. We certainly can do a lot to, um, to plan and protect things, and particularly the house, because the house is an exempt asset. And a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. But a person can qualify for Medicaid and still own their house, um, especially if they have a spouse still living there. Interesting. So I, I, I would think that there was specific income um, requirements for for that. And you're saying that it might be a little um, a little more lenient than people think, especially with, with owning your house, things like that. Mm -hmm. There are income and asset tests to be able to qualify for Medicaid. Um, but one of the things that I look at with clients is, OK, let's look at your circumstances let's compare that to the requirements and let's see if there are some things that, you know, planning strategies we can use 
to um, to get you to qualify for Medicaid without you know having to spend everything that you have. Megan, I have a question for you because this comes up also um, often. Uh, we're told that there's a look back as far as assets, and uh, this I've heard. Um, from different attorneys. It's, it's a little confusing. They go back maybe uh, five years. I'm not sure. I think it was at 1.3 years. So how does um, look back affect what somebody can receive from Medicaid or in our area, there's something called family care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bruce, what you're referring to is the look back period for gifting. So anytime a person applies for Medicaid, right on the application, there are about five questions that they have to answer. And all of those questions relate to gifting. So have you made a gift in the last five years? And if the answer is yes, depending on what type of gift it was and who it was gifted to, um, Medicaid could penalize that person for making that gift by saying that they're not eligible for a specific period of time. So um, that, you know, we certainly don't want to do gifting without uh, knowing the ramifications of that. And specifically with real estate, and Bruce, you mentioned earlier that you had a family where the parents had gifted the house to the kids even during lifetime. So a lot of times I I see that done as well. And they're really doing that to try to protect the house in the event that either of them would need long-term care in the future. And anytime we do that, we do have to be cognizant of that five-year waiting period, essentially. Um, And so there are a lot of different techniques that can be used to uh, do gifting like that, but it is very important that when any gifting is done, it's done with the right um, understanding, education, and advice. So, Megan, you know, you've covered a wide array of topics here, and I know you and I and Chris, we could probably go on for days about all of the, you know, stories we have and issues that concern folks, especially in my end of the field where I'm dealing with uh, selling the home, the long-term home of mom and dad. And there, again, I I find that most people, um, to my surprise, are prepared in in most cases um, for that distribution of assets when the house is sold. And thanks to people like you, um, really, um, uh, the folks that I have are so thankful, so fortunate, um, and thank God they didn't go online and, uh, you know, to the first site they could find for the auto document that uh, is pre-filled out for them and they just signed their name to it. So, um, again, I just can't thank you enough for, for, you know, being on our show and clarifying all these issues because they are just so, so important uh, for folks to know. Well, thank you for having me, Bruce. And Megan, before we wrap up, I know you uh, mentioned that it's uh, advisable for anyone to uh, that is looking at potentially looking at estate planning or something that concerns elder law or family law to consult with an attorney that practices that. And I know you are an attorney, of course, that does uh, specialize in those areas. Uh, where could folks uh, get in touch with you if they wanted to uh, look at a potential consultation uh, to find out more information? 
Yeah, I would appreciate um, anyone who has any questions, um, certainly giving me a call. Uh, as you said earlier, Chris, I, I work at McGillis Weimer. We're based out of um, Milwaukee, the um, kind of Wauwatosa area. And we have a website, mcgillisweemer.com, and our phone number is 414-727-5150. And again, my name is Megan Hendricks, so you can even Google me and, and you should be able to find me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll also put that information for anyone listening out there. We'll put that in the show notes. So that number and that information of how to get in touch with Megan will be there. Uh, uh, Bruce. Before we wrap up, uh, I know that you've got a lot going on. Uh, where can folks find out the latest information and the latest stuff that you have going on? Well, as always, Chris, uh, they can go to my website. It's brucesteam.com. And no, there's not an apostrophe. And you can also call us at 262-242-6177. My wife, Jean, will answer that phone and happy to answer any questions anybody might have. Um, and again, this, this has been, I've, I've been in this probably four decades and yeah. I just today learned several things I didn't know. So, um, you're never too old to learn. You're never too experienced to learn. And I, I really, I can't thank Megan enough. Uh, I echo those statements. I learned a lot and I, I haven't been in the industry for that long. So I learned just pretty much everything you said I was learning. And uh, I really, really appreciate uh, you coming on and taking time out of your schedule to, uh, to chat with us today, Megan. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Megan and Bruce. And thank you to all of you out there for listening. We would, of course, love if you could subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any great future episodes. You can find us at Bruce's website, which, as he said, is www.brucesteam.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. So thanks again for listening, and join us next week as we will, yet again, keep you moving in the right direction. We'll see you then. 